listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Camilla Feibelman, Director of the Rio Grande Chapter of the, Syria, of the Sierra Club. Camilla, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Of course. So let's start with the easy question. What is the Sierra Club? Well, it's a conservation organization that was founded in 1892. And at that time, all over the country, people were getting outdoors. There was the Appalachian Mountain Club and the Sierra Club, and they were going in groups to visit natural landscapes. And at a certain point, these groups started to realize that if they were going to enjoy nature for much longer, they better engage in protecting it. And groups like the Sierra Club became both outdoor organizations, but also advocacy organizations. They didn't always do it right. You know, there was a lot of land appropriation, lands that belonged to Native peoples, and a lot of conflict over who had the right to access those lands. But over the years and through time, we've re remained focused on connecting people to nature to inspire them to protect it. So that's actually very early in the history of conservation organizations, isn't it? We have, in terms of Earth Day, for example, really sparked a, a bit of a change in the way that Americans were thinking, and the world, I guess, but particularly the first Earth Day changed the way that Americans were thinking about the environment. But you're saying that the Sierra Club pre-existed that by a good 50 years or so. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at that time, I think people were seeing some really treasured landscapes being impacted. In the case of John Muir, there was a big debate over whether to dam and flood Hetch Hetchy to serve San Francisco. And although he had already made huge strides to create national parks like Yosemite, there was still a big debate with other advocates who felt that the public lands should be used more for extraction. And that led to the creation of the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. And, you know, all those years back, there were groups of people advocating all around the country to make the, make sure that certain public lands were protected for everybody to use. And actually, the reason that there are different tax deductible statuses these days is because the Sierra Club called on people in a full page ad in the New York Times to contact Congress to stop the damming and flooding of a certain part of the Grand Canyon. And uh, some elected leaders didn't like that. And they said, you can't lobby with charitable donations. So we figured out a way um, to do that work through a different status. But, you know, I think Earth Day was when the impacts of 
our environmental quality, air quality, the quality of water, seeing the Cleveland River catch on fire, um, that people really realized we were going to need serious protections through things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. And, and more. And we're, we're still at it in different forms. I think we started as a lands protection organization, but now if we're going to protect our lands, our water, and our wildlife, we urgently have to curb global climate change and sadly really adjust to living with it. So since you mentioned global climate change, anthropogenic warming or heating of the planet, I mean, one of the most obvious ways is through the way that we travel. Um, and I read a, mm-hmm. a recent survey that said that SUVs release more CO2 than the old small cars that we assume pollute. Does this kind of thing, the pollution of cars, does this, is this something under the radar of the, of the Sierra Club? Absolutely. And if you look at the greenhouse gas emissions that we generate here in New Mexico, I mean, by far and large, the the largest emitter of greenhouse gases is the oil and gas industry. They emit 53% of all of New Mexico's greenhouse gases. And that's before, you know, the oil and gas is even burned. That's just during the extraction phase. The second biggest category of pollution is transportation, and that's because there are so many vehicles, so many trucks, so many heavy trucks, and each one of those is an individual source of pollution, not only that drives climate change, but also that really impacts community health for people who live along our highways and go to school along those roadways. So, uh, I mean, this this. 53% 53% before it's even burned is enormous but what can what can people do about this you know i i mean for many people i i know there were discussions for example about closing one plant and other people turned around and said but this is our jobs this is our livelihood and i remember from when i was a kid in the 80s i remember when margaret thatcher closed the pits um, it, all across mm. the UK and left areas, vast areas of the UK devastated economically. And she turned around and said, look, we've actually just done a really good thing for the planet. Meanwhile, the people mm. locally turned around and said, now you've devastated our communities. There seems to be, you know, it's one thing for us to turn around and say, let's get a greener car. And I definitely want to talk about that. But it seems another when we're challenging the oil and gas industry of which, of course, a lot of money then flows into the local economy. How do you, as the Sierra Club, how do you respond to that in a in a productive, constructive way? Yeah, it's really important to the Sierra Club that we transition away from fossil fuels, but bring workers and communities along. In 2017, PNM announced that it would be closing the San Juan Generating Station. So we and partners got to work in preparing what's called the Energy Transition Act, and it gave our Public Regulation Commission broad authority to require that renewables and battery storage replace the coal, but that those facilities be located in the impacted community to replace the property tax base. And then it generated a whole bunch of extra money by refinancing the debt in the plant that has now been distributed to workers. 
So about $20 million of money went to plant and mine workers over the last year or so. And then another tranche of 455 checks for $20,000 each have gone to workers that now have left the plant and 62 more workers will get checks once they're done with the decommissioning and reclamation. On top of that, there's a whole tranche of funds for community transition projects. And so the whole piece of legislation was written with the idea that if the economic forces behind coal closing all around the country was going to happen, PNM had already announced that they would close the plant. Let's ensure that workers' landing is a little bit softer. Now, that's electric generation. Oil and gas extraction is a whole different sector. It doesn't employ that many people it's a little under 2% of the jobs in the state, but it does generate a lot of money for the state, but that can be, you know, a good thing and a bad thing. It's a real boom and bust economy. And so there are years where we're having to slash our investments in communities, other years where it seems like we're going to solve any, everything. But the reality is if you look at our family's success rates, whether it's poverty or hunger or education, those those standards don't really change whether oil and gas is doing well or not. And so a lot of these issues have to be dealt with at a policy level with our elected leaders, really taking the situation in hand and helping solve those issues. That being said, there is a lot of action that each individual family can take. And your action as a family, whether that's purchasing electric vehicle or installing solar panels, or this is probably the best thing to do, insulating your home so that you're not using as much energy, that has a ripple effect through neighborhoods. People see you doing that and they think about doing it themselves, but it might be installing solar on your congregation. It might be looking at climate policies in your workplace or at your child's school. And that's what the Sierra Club is here to do is help people take that real fear coming from what we're seeing on the news. The fires last summer, this really terribly hot summer this year, uh, seeing raging hurricanes, seeing the impacts of climate change in the form of storms and dams collapsing. Um, it can be really scary and a little disempowering, but we help people take little bites of the apple and see how as a global community working all together, we can make a difference. I really appreciate this answer because of course, it's really important to move beyond the sound bites. And, you know, a, a lot of what we hear about, for example, plant closures and so on is only what can be encapsulated in a small article or, or something similar. So you explaining that gentle process of helping people through, I think, for me, is, is really important. It's really empowering, in fact. You, you shared uh, this idea of fear, people being afraid. I wonder if a lot of the hesitation in terms of um, becoming more green as consumers is not so much about fear, but about affordability. And I wonder if you could talk a little about, for example, when we were as Temple Beth Shalom, we're exploring again, uh, having solar panels on our roof. I remember when we went through the process about six years ago, 
And I remember we got to a point of almost installing it. And then the company said, actually, we've just realized the commercial rate is twice as much and we couldn't afford it. And I wonder if that's also similar for a lot of people who think that solar panels on their homes or electric vehicles um, will be too expensive for them. There's certainly a push amongst those who I believe from the oil and gas lobby to say, look, electric vehicles may seem to save the planet, but you know, look at the cost of a new battery. That seems to be the new thing that's coming out. How do how do you address cost in terms of the the cost of um, the fear of the cost of going green? Well, that is a really important point that that we have to deal with. And in all of the different technological areas, prices are coming down. So when it comes to solar panels, you know, the first thing that we recommend is always doing quotations with three different companies to understand what they have to offer, what the lease terms are, or the credit that you might need to take out compared to what your actual bill is. In a house like mine, where we only use about $40 a month uh, on electricity, it might not be the best path forward where actually pursuing insulation on the house might be more efficient. When it comes to electric vehicles, uh, we are seeing a real opening of opportunities for people to purchase vehicles. Some of the cheapest vehicles on the market, for example, a Chevy Bolt, is about $25,000 if you combine the different federal credits and our hope for state credits in the coming legislative session combined with some benefits that PNM is proposing um, in, in its transfer, transportation electrification plan, um, you might get as much as $16,000 off the price of a car. Wow, wow. Now, if you combine that with the reduced maintenance that electric vehicles have um, and the fact that you don't have to buy gas, driving an electric car is like driving a, a gas-fueled car at 75 cents a gallon. Wow. So, you know, the, what we're seeing is, you know, in some cases there may be a slight increase in the upfront cost of something, but over time you'll see real savings, you know, that you can calculate in your month-to-month bill. And I think that's really important because I think a lot of people want to go green. I want to be more environmentally conscious consumers, but there is that fear. But I, I really appreciate you sharing some of the ways to alleviate that concern. We've got to take a break. So um, we're going to, when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about what it is to have an electric vehicle in New Mexico. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Camilla Feibelman, director of the Rio Grande chapter of the Sierra Club. And we'll be back in a moment. You're back listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. And my guest, Camilla Feibelman, director of the Rio Grande chapter of the Sierra Club, um, has been talking, been sharing with us about affordable ways to go green, essentially, particularly with solar panels or insulation and electric vehicles. Let's start. Let's ask about 
what's the state of electric vehicles in New Mexico? I don't see um, very many charging stations. I think there's a there's a social element here, isn't there? That you need the infrastructure for people to buy into it. But for people to buy into it, you need the infrastructure. So, what's the state of electric vehicles in New Mexico? Yeah, well, let's start from a charging standpoint. So currently, there are 500 chargers installed throughout the state, and a whole tranche of federal money is coming our way to add many more charges, chargers all around the state. Um, you know, every 50 miles on the highway, and from there in rural communities and every place you might need one. I will say that 80% of people charge at home. And, you know, you really can charge your electric vehicle just on a regular plug. It'll take longer, but you'll be doing that at night, and that should be okay. But there are several credits, a sustainable buildings tax credit, and in the case of PNM, a pretty hefty rebate that you can use to install the higher speed chargers at your house. Now, that is then compared with being able to find a car to buy. Currently, the state operates under federal EPA rules when it comes to what's called fuel economy, how polluting cars are. But the governor is in the process of adopting rules through her Environmental Improvement Board to bring more electric vehicles to the state. So right now, those percentages of required EV sales uh, really are led by California, and 16 other states have joined the California rules. Once New Mexico joins those rules, dealers will really have to start to bring electric vehicles here so that when you go to the lot, you'll find vehicles to look at, find vehicles to try, and find vehicles to buy. So that's why these clean cars and trucks rules are so important um, and will be heard before the Environmental Improvement Board and hopefully adopted in time to apply for model year 2027. That doesn't mean that there aren't vehicles to buy right now, and the Inflation Reduction Act offers $7,500 right off your taxes. It can be in a rebate if you don't have that much uh, tax liability, but it has to be cars that are manufactured in the state, so you have to look at the list of applicable cars. Now, we had proposed electric vehicle tax credits for New Mexico that would have given $4,000 to low-income families and $2,500 to middle-income families. The governor actually vetoed that bill but came back and said, I want to do it bigger and I want to do it better and I want to make sure to do it right. So she announced an intention in this 30-day legislative session that comes up in mid-January to do a big bill that would apply to new and used cars that would help low-income families. And a lot of dealers will just accept your tax credit as cash and take that price off the hood when you're buying the car. But if you don't want to do that, you can wait until you get your tax bill. And even if you don't have a high enough tax bill for that to make a difference, you get that back in cash. Mm. So given that we passed this legislation through both the House and the Senate, and the governor has expressed this excellent intention to move forward with the bill, you know, again, I think people can get around $16,000 off of their of, of the cost of a vehicle. Uh, more on that end if you're a lower income family and maybe a little less if you're a middle 
middle-income family. I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of money that's being spoken about here. I'm just... I think, as I said before, I think so many people would want to, so many people understand the need to go green. But also, it's just, I remember when I test drove a, I won't say which car, but an electric vehicle. And I was just amazed, this must have been 15 years ago, I was amazed with how quiet it was, and how much more pleasant it was as a, as a sensory experience. Um, I, I think a lot of people yeah. want this, but have been waiting for legislature to be able to turn around and say, here's ways to make it affordable to you. I, I think when the governor announced this this um, electric vehicle tax credit idea and, and for the forthcoming legislative session, you know, she also mentioned about the idea of state vehicles all being green, uh, all being electric vehicles within 12 years, with the exceptions of, and then listed a number of exceptions, and I have to say, I read this personally. I remember recently, fairly recently, uh, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak turned around and said, well, the electric rules and the environmental rules and the carbon emissions rules that had been set in previous years just weren't good for business anymore. So we're going to extend them for another five years. Every time I hear um, uh, an intention. This will happen. We will go green by this time. We'll go green within 10 years, within 15 years. We'll go green by 2020. I remember lots of people saying, we'll halve our carbon emissions by 2020. And as they got to 2020, they said, okay, so maybe we'll reduce them by 75% in 2030. When I hear these things, I become immediately skeptical. How do you, as someone who's been working in this field, how do you hear things, for example, when the governor turns around and says state vehicles will be environmentally friendly or green vehicles within 12 years? How, how do you hear that? You know, I actually am encouraged okay. by that news. I mean, I came away from a governor's transportation symposium where she made that announcement feeling really encouraged. I mean, agencies from the Department of Transportation to, you know, the procurement department were sitting on stage kind of working out in some ways in front of a big audience how all of this would work. And I think you add these aspirational ideas to to the billions of dollars that the infrastructure or the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is sending to the state, and you can't help but think maybe this is the moment. However, all of this requires that each one of us demand implementation. So it is important to have an executive order where when a car is brought out of commission, it's then replaced by an electric vehicle, but the legislature actually has to appropriate the amount of money that will be required to do that. So, and it's not really in total much more than a gas vehicle, especially with all the savings. But right now, the uh, lifespan of these vehicles aren't being replaced on time because those monies haven't been fully appropriated by the legislature. So, you know, I wish that I could say that these commitments always turn into reality, but I think now more than ever, especially young people and maybe, well, maybe all of us, you know, mm -hmm. grandparents are worried about their grandkids, parents are worried about the kids, kids are worried about their future. 
And I think that there's a real groundswell happening right now of people saying, how will we choose to leave this planet for our little people? You probably heard the dog bark and the door open earlier, and that was my seven-year-old running in to talk to me about something exciting happening out front. And, you know, that future that we're leaving for him outside the front door is what we all have to be asking ourselves. So we cannot wait for the governor as great as she is and as good as she is at moving us forward uh, for those things to just magically implement themselves. But we have to show up at the legislature. We have to call our representatives and senators. I mean, here in New Mexico, it is very easy to get to personally know your elected officials and make an outsized difference compared to if you live in a higher population state. So, you know, if you're feeling nervous about this or you you just don't know what to do, and as I said earlier, you're a little blocked, join the Sierra Club. Join our grassroots lobby team to go to the roundhouse and talk to legislators about these solutions. But demand, you know, in a nice way that the planet remain habitable for us and that right. we do what we need to do as a state. I, I so appreciate this. You know, sometimes my cynicism comes through in the show. And and part of the reason of having guests like you is to remind us of hope and, and our role in hope. Mm-hmm. And I think that your response to my cynicism by saying, so go out and make sure it happens is actually really important <laughs> for me. I, I really appreciate it. In the final two minutes, let me just ask, I've, I have heard people far more cynical than I am, you know, say it's too late. Um, you said this is the moment. This is the moment to make sure the planet remains hospitable. But I've heard many people now turn around, say it's too late and climate change is already here and our society is going to be so radically transformed that now all we have to do is go into adaptation How do you respond in literally two minutes to the claim that it's too late? It's never too late. And our kids know that. We each know that. How many challenges do we face as individuals that we come to terms with? Whether we could have done that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, we have to do it all. We can't deny the fact that we do have to adapt and make life livable for the communities who are facing the worst impacts of climate change, which are overall communities of color, countries uh, with lower incomes uh, than our own, but even with our own country, um, really vulnerable communities facing the impacts of climate change. So we've got to do that work, but we also have to do the other part of figuring out another path forward about driving that technology, about looking for policy solutions, about demanding that corporations do their part, that companies stop hiding the impact of global climate change, and that we come up with solutions that work for our economy, for our communities, and for our families' health. And we can do all of that. Uh, I so appreciate this. I appreciate you being here and, and reminding us of people power and of the power of the Sierra Club, the ability to be able to hold people to account, hold them to their words, to take their pledges and their commitments and say, we're going to help you make sure that they happen so that, you know, the next generation sees that we haven't given up on them 
and given up on their future and that we can try to have have a world that they enjoy as much as we do. So Camilla Feibelman, director of the Rio Grande chapter of the Sierra Club, just thank you so much for being on our show today. And I really wish you well with um, pushing in the forthcoming legislature for all these really exciting things. Um, Thank you for being on our show today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.